0: Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute Talking Tall Rounds. I'm Eric Rothelli, and I'm here with Jack Ricard, who is um, um, the founder of our uh, CRT clinic, Multidisciplinary Heart Failure Clinic. Uh, which is really in line with our multidisciplinary and collaborative care that we provide at the Cleveland Clinic. We went to a a institute model uh, many years ago, a little different from the traditional sort of Department of Medicine and Department of Surgery design, because we knew that we needed to focus more on patient-centered care. And within our Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute, we also wanted to create... Opportunities for people that are focused on specific problems to work better together, more optimally. And so we also have many centers within our organization of the Cleveland Clinic. And in addition to centers, we have even more specifically focused clinics. And that's the topic of today's talk. And I'm really excited to talk with Jack about this. Um, In keeping with our Tall Rounds format, the Tall Rounds event begins with a case presentation, Jack. You want to yeah. Follow-up? Thanks, Eric. I
1: appreciate you having me, and uh, it's really exciting to be able to talk to you today. And you know, so the case that we presented at Tall Rounds was a really an interesting case, and one that uh, we've seen a couple uh, at this point. It was a gentleman who was in his fifties, who um, had a, a big left bundle branch block, non ischemic cardiomyopathy a really good candidate for CRT Eric you know he he met all of the the criteria big wide left bundle very symptomatic one of our colleagues tried to take him to the lab to put a CRT device in and just because of an anatomical problems uh wasn't able to get a CRT device implanted ended up going uh to surgery for an epic surgically placed epicardial lead got the lead and did poorly uh, after that, potentially even worse. Ended up in our multidisciplinary clinic where we really needed to put uh, our heads together to figure out what to do for this guy who was a formerly functional guy in his 50s with his family. And you know, we put him through this multidisciplinary approach with input from heart failure, from imaging, from CT surgery, and obviously electrophysiology and came up with a plan Ultimately, the problem in the case was that the, the surgical lead was placed not in a great position. It wasn't really the surgeon's fault. It was a, like the guy's obese and it wasn't really a, it was fairly challenging to get the lead laterally. It was more anteriorly placed. After uh, much debate, we decided that, uh, you know, the heart failure meds were all all optimized. There wasn't much we could do for that. We talked to CT surgery. There wasn't a whole lot. They They didn't want to take the patient back because it was tough the first time. So we decided to try to go back into the lab and try to get it in, uh, give us another shot, doing it percutaneously. And fortunately, we were able to get by some of the anatomical problems that our the first implanter couldn't get around. And we got delivered an LV lead, and that gentleman's digestion fraction improved dramatically as NYHA class uh, became two, and he basically turned around quite a bit. Ultimately, he also required therapies for atrial fibrillation and flutter, and he received an ablation. Uh, and the end result was that he's back to work and, um, you know, the ejection fractions in the 45% range. And doing great, but uh, he was headed down a pretty dark road, uh, potentially looking towards advanced heart failure therapies because he was that sick. And it was a really nice turnaround that required input from imaging CT, surgery, heart failure and electrophysiology to figure out what to do for him.
0: That's a, that's an awesome success story, um, you know, especially. At, a very young guy you know he's like around my age (laughs) and uh to get him from an ejection fraction of 10 or 15 percent up to the 45 range and and functional you know truly functional that's uh that's got to be exciting it really did require a whole bunch of people to come come together around him you you um kind of let off this discussion in the tall rounds about how you built that team can you give us some of the highlights and or maybe even tell us some of the difficulties you ran into, if, if any, or or suggestions for folks who want to do this elsewhere. Yeah,
1: so, you know, the first thing was identifying the problem, you know, and when you look at the guidelines for CRT therapy, the North American guidelines, European guidelines, Asian guidelines, they do a really good job of kind of recapitulating the uh, clinical trials, multiple clinical trials on CRT, but they do an awful job of telling us what we should do after the device has been implanted. And that's very important because CRT care around the country is fragmented. People don't get the best care after CRT is put in. So we attempted to kind of remedy this issue with the goal of not just starting a small little clinic, a Cleveland clinic, but to try to create an algorithm that could be used nationally or internationally where we could try to address this problem, the ultimate goal of changing guidelines. What we did was we teamed up with, uh, it was electrophysiologist myself and um, my colleagues in heart failure, decided that we would uh, start this clinic such that every patient who got CRT would be seen in our clinic at six months after the device was implanted. The patients are seen in the same room at the same time with both doctors simultaneously doing somewhat different things. And then they would get an individualized plan uh, to, you know, going forward. If they were doing great, they get a pat on the back. If they were doing horribly, they could get, you know, referrals for an LVAD and everything in between those two extremes. The purpose of this was to break down the silos of care that were, that, Inevitably involve in not just cardiology, but lots of different specialties to try to, you know, target what we believe are some of the sickest patients in cardiology, the CRT recipient. And try to get to them earlier before, you know, it's too late. And to your question about the challenges, yeah, there were, there were some challenges along the road developing this. Um, you know, we've been at this for over 3 years now and. We've given lots of talks around the country with this and we now have a bunch of sister sites that have adopted the same algorithm. And secondly, the scheduling is complex, right? So you're scheduling out six months with an echocardiogram in the morning. So the, the actual scheduling pit of it, is, it was challenging, but after some, you know, some trial and error, we were able to overcome those obstacles.
0: It's on. That's fantastic. It's nice to um, hear about it after you've had some experience, right? I mean, you guys have been doing this for a couple of years and, you know, we do the same sort of thing when we treat some of these other complex problems that we run into, like advanced stage valve uh, disease, and certainly an aortic disease. Really, congrats to you to build this team. A couple of the heart failure colleagues are folks we hear from next in this talk, in this event, this tall rounds event. Uh, Wilson Kang, who has been a heart failure cardiologist here at the Cleveland Clinic for probably 20 years, or getting close to it, a very prominent researcher in the field, talks to us about medical optimization for CRT. I thought it was interesting he brought up a point about how CRT is probably underutilized and, uh, and a couple of other important uh, important points about medical therapy. Yeah,
1: I mean, Wilson gave a really nice talk, really nice summary of what, where we're at, um, that, you know, Oftentimes that patients come to us and, you know, what one person's ideal idea of optimal medical therapy really is not usually what a heart failure doctor's uh, idea of ther- optimal medical therapy is. So a lot of times we see these patients and they're on what he would call a child doses of CoReg or Lisinopril, you know, small doses of Lisinopril. So oftentimes there's lots of opportunities to uptitrate medications. He also brought up a point that was really interesting, and this was a really interesting study uh, that was uh, presented at Heart Failure Society of America last year, where they looked at patients who had normalized their ejection fraction post CRT. You know, the, the super responder, usually that female non-ischemic left bundle who just has this enormous response. And they then saw, okay, did we fix the myopathy? So they withdrew in half the patients, they withdrew, you know, the beta blocker and the ACE inhibitor. And they went on to see how they would do compared to super responders who continued medical therapy. They found was that the ones that the super responders who had the medical therapy withdrawn did worse. So it really gets to the point where we're not fixing the problem, we're me- mediating it, I, I would say, mitigating it, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like we're suppressing it. It didn't fix it, it suppressed it. So um, that was a really interesting point, a really interesting paper that you brought up.
0: Yeah. That's... It's what these complex problems need are these, you know, multiple, multi-component complementary therapies that one person can't deliver alone. I I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be an EP doc who's handling all the complex rhythm issues that you guys deal with and then be um, also asked to handle the complexities of managing um, heart failure medicines, which seems like we have a new one every six to 12 months in a new study that comes out that describes different ways to use those medicines. If you want those physicians that are on the leading edge of all those detailed kind of therapies, you really need, I think, a team to take care of these patients. Our next speaker is Choni Albert. Yeah. Another heart failure specialist, special kind of people that decide to be heart failure specialists. (laughs) And a lot of persistence. Uh, She gives a great talk. We'll, We'll actually hear her talk at the end of this discussion, because I thought she gave a really nice uh, conversation and and discussion and review and summary of a problem that everybody uh, is going to run into are the patients that fail CRT.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tony Tony really did give a nice summary of um, uh, of where we're at, and one of the things that I, I think is really interesting about Tony's talk, and one of the things that most people don't realize is, you know, there have been over thirteen thousand papers written on CRT, and most of them refer to a CRT responder or a non-responder, right? You know, you get the CRT device and three, six, six months later, whatever, you check an echo and the ejection fraction gets better or didn't. And all those who didn't get better were labeled non-responders, right? Mm-hmm. In 2021, we're starting to kind of throw that on its head a little bit because that dichotomous kind of phenotype doesn't really take into account the natural history of disease. So we're starting to think there may be actually five phenotypes with CRT outcomes, meaning that you've got the super responder that pure electrical myopathy that gets, gets better. You've got the responder who that could be kind of an ischemic male patient with a left bundle whose ejection fraction improves. but doesn't get all the way better. But then what's interesting is there uh, this has now crept into the European guidelines, this idea of a stabilizer, meaning that someone whose ejection fraction may not get better but didn't get worse, and you seem to have blunted the natural history of disease. And for years, those patients would have been kind of tossed into the non-responder category But that's not really true, right? Because if you hadn't given them CRT, they would have gotten a lot worse. So, and then the true non responders, the person doesn't get better, doesn't get worse. They kind of stay the same. And then the negative responder. And that's another thing to my heart for their colleagues. I don't recognize that there's a small percentage of patients whose injection fraction and symptoms actually get worse with CRT. And that could be the patient had a bad lead position, coupled with a bad electrical substrate to start with. So, Tony really talked about a little bit about a lot of different aspects of CRT, but I really kind of keyed in on the, the phenotypes as she described because that's novel and a lot of people don't think of it that way. Yeah, yeah, I think
0: that's that's really makes a lot of sense. Um gives you some sort of structure about uh kind of how to manage folks, or at least uh at least gives um people out there that are taking care of these patients a better sense of when to refer people to, to a specialist as well. But a lot of this, these decisions, these fine decisions about where we going next are guided by the imaging that we do. And uh, we hear from Rick Grimm, who runs our echocardiography lab and also has vast experience in seeing uh, all, all kinds of complex patients. And um, And has been through sort of the, the whole evolution, a lot of different imaging modalities as well gives us a nice review of that next.
1: Yeah, I think I think Rick's one of the experts at AV optimization. Um, he really did a nice talk. In a way, imaging with CRT could, t- could take a big back step when the the prospect trial was published a co- about I think it's like eight years ago now, which looked at various measures of mechanical dysynchrony and trying to predict CRT outcome. The trial failed, and as a result, you know we haven't in the EP and heart failure community haven't really given a lot of attention to the imaging and CRT. But I think that's a disservice to our patients. I actually believe that imaging can really does does really play a, a key role in some of these CRT patients, for example, in our case, Eric, we actually put the patient through uh, an echo uh, an echocardiogram looking at strain imaging on and off, and we, we determined that the patient was actually doing worse with that surgical epicardial lead than he was with the device off and that was important because it gave us kind of more kind of Backing to take the patient back to the lab to do an invasive procedure, knowing that, you know, this really wasn't working and that the imaging really did play a key role in helping us make that decision. So, I don't think the imaging matters in every patient, but certainly the CRT non responders, for example, the left bundle branch block non responders. Imaging may play a key role. What we do at the Cleveland Clinic with that is that we turn the device off. We do longitudinal strain imaging to identify the latest activated mechanical segment in the LV. And then we try to figure out whether our LV lead is in that segment near it or just way off. And if it's way off, that gives us fodder to take the patient back to the lab to either put the LV lead in a different spot or try LBB pacing or his bubble pacing. In certain patients, we we believe that, you know, the imaging does play a role. And kind of Rick did a nice summary of it.
0: That's great. You know, one thing I've noticed, there's all this discussion about... Precision medical care, and a lot of the focus about this discussion is in medicine is focused on the genetic basis of things. But I'll tell you, as our as our imaging technologies get more and more complex and we see imaging where we can combine physiology with structure, that concept of providing precision care to patients guided by their imaging, I think, is an important one we need to focus on. And that, that's exactly what you described, You know, the ability to be more precise for any particular patient. With that imaging guidance, um, and then of course we got a um, a nice little wrap up from Adam. I like the way you broke the case up into sort of the pre and and post discussion. And as you already told us, the patient had a had a great response to the therapies. And then there is some other uh, important therapy though along the electrophysiology lines based on specific problems that you run into. And our final speaker was Tyler tegan who's an electrophysiologist who who uh, who uh, both trained here and. And now works with us and discussed what he does in the lab in some of these complex patients with, uh, with focused uh, uh, issues that require yeah. ablation. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, in the last couple of years, um, there's been kind of a renewed interest in looking at uh, AFib, specifically PVI, in patients with heart failure. The CASLAF trial was uh, a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine showing a mortality outcome in patients treated with PVI who have a depressed ejection fraction. And so Tyler did a nice job summarizing why we, you know, may choose to be aggressive in terms of rhythm control in patients with a depressed EF. The other issue, this really pertains well to the CRT patient because, remember, AF is a big, it interrupts 5V pacing, right? The irregularity of the CRT makes CRT not as effective. In fact, in some cases, not effective at all. Oftentimes, when you in a persistent AF patient, when you read the percent 5V pacing, it'll say 95%. But in reality, if you got a Holter, a lot of those paste waveforms are fused and not really effective CRT. Not effective. Right. Right. So we we in our clinic were very aggressive treating AFib um, in in, in patients who have have CRT devices for that very reason. And this patient had flutter uh, and AFib, but ultimately, you know, without an ablation to get rid of the flutter, all the efforts we made – to get this patient adequate CRT would have been for naught. So I think that was the point that um, you know just stopping at getting the CRT implant wasn't enough. We then had to address the uh, the rhythm disturbance.
0: Yeah, great. And and then you guys were were spot on with the plan uh, to save a few minutes for a discussion, which was also really great. And um, I think you guys really delivered an, an excellent Tall Rounds event. Uh, thank you for that. Thanks for leading that. I look forward to working with you on many more. For the members of our audience that are interested in viewing the entire Tall event that's focused on the uh, CRT heart failure uh, clinic model and a discussion of it, you can see this online, and we also offer complimentary CME from those events and many others. Please feel free to to join us online. It's it's a free service to get a, a front seat of the academic and educational events that happen at the world-class Cleveland Clinic. Jack, I really enjoyed talking with you today.
1: Thanks so much, Eric, this is great. I'd like to introduce Dr. Choni Albert, who talks to "Reasons for poor CRT response 2020. Choni is a heart failure physician in our section of heart failure and uh, works in, closely with me in the CRT Hf clinic.
2: My name is Chan-Yan Albert and I'm from the section of heart failure and it's my pleasure to discuss the causes of CRT non-response. As we know, there are five categories of post-CRT outcomes. You can have super responders, responders, non-progressors, non-responders, and negative responders. And the definition of CRT non-response has been varied in the literature, ranging from hard clinical outcomes such as death or heart failure, morbidity, mortality. Remodeling measures, as defined by left ventricular geometry and dimension, volumes, for example, functional measurements, and clinical composite measures. No matter how you look at the data, in general, about 30 to 40 percent of patients who receive a CRT are ultimately considered non-responders. And the reasons for CRT non-response can be multifactorial. In these papers from Wilfred Mullins, Wilson Tain et al. looked at insights into why patients may not be CRT responders. And broadly speaking, we can break it down into three major categories. Medical optimization, EP management, and disease severity. For the purposes of my talk, I've, again, structured it into heart failure uh, causes of non-response, imaging considerations, and EP causes of non-response. Because I'm a heart failure physician, I'm going to start with the heart failure causes of non-response. It's important to consider the etiology of heart failure. In patients with extensive cardiac scarring, such as those with ischemic cardiomyopathy or potentially uh, undefined or underdiagnosed valvular heart disease or infiltrative heart disease, those patients may not respond as well to CRT treatment. Additionally, regardless of the etiology of heart failure, patients with extensive LV dilatation may not respond as well. In this previous paper by Dr. Ricard et al, looked at the point of no return, uh, so to speak. And the inflection point appears to be around 6.5 centimeters in terms of the left ventricular and diastolic dimension, beyond which, if the left ventricle is severely remodeled, we may not expect a good CRT response. Additionally, as Dr. Wilson-Tain just discussed, we should always strive to optimize guideline-directed medical therapy, not only the appropriate medications, but at maximally tolerated doses for all of our heart failure with reduced EF patients. But particularly in patients who have shown non-response to CRT, this gives us an opportunity to really dive deep on their medications and optimize them as best as we can. And because this is a moving field with the introduction of ARNIs and SGLT2 inhibitors, it's important for us to uh, fully optimize patients medically. Lastly, we should consider heart failure severity and staging. We know that frailty is a predictor of poor CRT response. So it's possible that patients have not responded to CRT because simply they're too frail. But also, we know that uh, some patients have potentially progressed to stage D or end stage heart failure. I like this mnemonic, previously published in 2017, to help us uh, parse out the red flags, which might indicate somebody is truly at advanced heart failure staging. And of course, we know that patients who are uh, re- requiring inotropes, were previously required inotropes, that's a high risk feature. But we should also be reminded of patients with severe functional limitations, end organ dysfunction, very depressed ejection fraction, frequent defibrillator shocks, hospitalizations, worsening edema, lower blood pressure, and poor tolerance to guideline direct and medical therapy. These are red flags as well, and in the CRT multidisciplinary clinic, the heart failure physician can detect these patients and make a timely referral for advanced heart failure therapies such as a, a ventricular assist devices or heart transplantations when appropriate. In terms of imaging predictors of non-response, you'll hear more from Dr. Grimm later, but we know that uh, advanced imaging modalities such as cardiac MRI can better define scar burden. We know that there are um, tools in in terms of looking at left ventricular geometry and uh, to improve uh, synchrony. Lastly, we arrive at the electrophysiologic causes of non-response, and I think there are three main categories to consider here, the electrical substrate, the lead placement and percentage of biventricular pacing. We know that patients who have a true left-bundle branch block cardiomyopathy with a Straussian left-bundle branch block re- respond the best to CRT treatment by definition of their underlying uh, cause of, of um, dysynchrony. In patients who have a right bundle branch block or a mixed picture with an intraventricular conduction delay, we do not expect as robust of a response to CRT pacing. Lead placement is also of paramount importance. And in this AP view on the left of the chest x-ray, you can see that the heart has been parsed out into basal, mid, and apical sections. And on the lateral view on the right, the heart is parsed out into anterior, lateral, and posterior sections. Previous work has shown that the left ventricular lead placement in anterolateral and posterolateral placements tend to uh, uh, respond more favorably than lead positions in the anterior or posterior positions. Additionally, we know that patients with non-apical LV lead position do better than those with apical uh, leads. Lastly, we should pay attention to optimize the percentage of biventricular pacing. This paper showed that when when assessed by quartiles, patients with biventricular pacing percentage above 99.6% experienced a 24% reduction in mortality compared with other quartile groups. Thus, attention must be made to fully optimize the percentage of biventricular pacing, paying special attention to the occurrence of PVCs and atrial arrhythmias. In summary, there are multiple reasons why a patient may not be uh, may not have a good CRT response. We should consider the heart failure and imaging reasons, such as the etiology of heart failure, frailty of the patient, the severity of heart failure. And this gives, gives the heart failure physicians an opportunity to re-examine patients' guideline-directed medical therapy and refer for advanced therapies when appropriate. In terms of the EP reasons for poor CRT response, we must consider the electrical substrate, Uh, attempt to optimize lead placement and to improve the percentage of biventricular pacing. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tall rounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.